Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So today we're going to give you our brief predictions for the year 2022. We are going to try to bring a little bit of, of political science heat to these predictions and not just make wild pundit predictions. We'll see how successful we are in that goal. We're going to take on three topics. We're recording this on January 6, 2022, the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection that we have talked about at the time. And so that uh, kind of brings us right into our first topic, which is democracy shenanigans. And after that, we're going to talk about legislation and the 2022 midterms. So, I mean, I've, I've deliberately wrote the script using this ridiculous shenanigans word, but really this is a a super serious topic. So what do we see in terms of developments in and, and challenges to democracy in the United States in the coming year? Lee, you want to kick us off? Yeah, well, I, I mean, one of the things that, that I've been struck by in the discourse TM is how much the kind of mood on the, on the political left is not just about this present moment, but about this kind of question of is the Constitution itself democratic and are, are we even living in a democracy? And, and you know, I, I think we're kind of asking or at least starting to ask some of these really profound questions about what do we even mean by democracy? Is it just about elections or is there something thicker that we have to consider, do we have minoritarian, counter-majoritarian institutions that are, are a fundamental flaw of the Constitution? Uh, I mean, maybe it's just because I've been reading the, the New York Times op-ed pages um, for the last couple of days, uh, and I feel like there's been a few of those those arguments. But I mean, it's certainly something that, that I've been thinking more broadly about for a while, which is this question of like, what does democracy really look like? There are so many different forms that democracy can take. And I think, you know, we have for a long time in this country sort of thought the, that American democracy was a model and, you know, we sort of experienced it in the ways in, in which, you know, we have these regular elections and we choose between these two parties. But, you know, looking at, at, at what's been happening in the states and and what's potentially happening in Congress, I'm still holding out hope that Congress might pass the the Freedom to Vote Act. But I, we're really discussing some very fundamental questions about what the rules of a democracy ought to look like and what counts as a democracy. And I think this is, you know, obviously for me, this is you know like like a like a kid in a democracy candy store uh, moment. So. I'm really excited for this year. Uh, also terrified about how things could go backwards, but at the same time, excited about the, the questions that we're opening up. 
Interesting. That's a nice a nice positive spin to start the year. Uh, James? Yeah. I Well, first of all, I just want to say it's important to remember what happened on January 6th. You know, I worked in the Capitol for almost two decades of my life. I met my wife there. It was a very special place to me personally, and it's a sacred space in our um, in our in our national polity. And, and, I, and what I saw transpire one year ago and I watched in real time was was absolutely horrifying. Um, so I think it's important that we not forget that. I also think it's, I want to echo what Lee said in terms of the attention that we see right now on our politics, I think is is a good thing in part, because we need more people engaged, regardless of what they believe in, because that's how we resolve our disagreements in this country. We don't choose violence, we choose politics of bargaining and negotiating with one another in these collective spaces and in our institutions. However, I am a little worried because we see right now, in my opinion, an outgrowth of our emphasis on elections as the be-all and end-all of politics. And we've kind of lost sight of what happens in between those elections. And politics is an ongoing activity. It's not just something where we choose our rulers every two to four years and then sit back and let them uh, you know, rule us, so to speak. But I wanna touch on really quickly the two speeches today from President Biden and Vice President Harris in the Capitol commemorating the January 6th attacks. And then I also you know, wanna kind of engage some of this discourse that we've seen on the left and it's been on the right in the past as well. But Harris said, you know, what is at stake is our ability to decide our future under the Constitution. And we've we've talked about this in past episodes where there's this effort to compare the attack on the Capitol to what's happening in state legislatures around the country, particularly Florida and Georgia, Texas, Arizona, um, to change election rules and election reform. And Biden compared this explicitly to the January 6th attacks, and he calls it wrong undemocratic and un-American. And what's remarkable to me here is our effort to cherry pick, to cherry pick things in the constitution and then to wield it as a like a club to bludgeon our opponents and declare them illegitimate and to say that they somehow can't participate in politics and to try to win debates that way. Because ultimately what is happening in the States, look, it may be a good idea or a bad idea on a policy perspective, but it certainly is within the rubric or the context of what is constitutional. States have the authority to do this and to somehow suggest that it's wrong, undemocratic and un-American to do something that the constitution allows us to do without saying, look, the constitution is seriously flawed and we should therefore change it, you know, which, which is not what the president and what Democrats in particular are saying right now. And look, it might be, and that I disagree, but I think that's a debate that we can have, but to somehow assume and take that for granted and then to move on and to use it to declare, you know, somebody using their constitutional power is the same thing as someone storming the Capitol and breaking windows and, and trying to chase down cops and build gallows for the vice president as those are the two uh, manifestations of the same thing, I think is seriously concerning. And when we see this effort to subvert or accusations to subvert our democratic republic, 
if anything, declaring you know actions that are done in accordance with the Constitution without engaging in a debate that we should change the Constitution, as Lee says, that in and of itself, I think, is an effort to subvert our democratic republic. So on one hand, I'm very you know excited about the upcoming year. I'm excited. Politics is where we negotiate the non-negotiable. It, it is about conflict and it's about disagreement. And I'm always heartened to see people disagree in the public square. But I'm at the same time very worried about our ability to conduct politics when we try to declare our opponents as illegitimate and as enemies to the republic, if you will, simply because we disagree with them on a policy perspective. Curious what, what Julia has to say here, because I mean, one of the, the most important things I've learned from Julia's analysis is that we have to talk about democratic values here. And, you know, I, I think whether something is in the, you know, is constitutional, I mean, the Constitution is, you know, mere, a mere parchment. We're having a fight here about what our democratic values are, uh, I think it is the is the core question here. Julia? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so I have thoughts that maybe go in a similar direction to this vein. I want to think about the way we can we can conceptualize our democracy problem or threats to democracy as sort of multiple kind of interlocking problems, but distinct problems. Because on, so on the one hand, you've got the phenomena that you both are talking about, which I would put broadly under the umbrella of kind of rejecting legitimate opposition. And I get what you're saying, James, that it's tricky to say, and I'm here, I'm flying a little bit blind based on what you said, because I missed Vice President Harris's speech this morning. But I think some of what we're talking about is the sort of rules that are going on in the states, changing up, changing up voting rules per what happened in, say, in Georgia, but also changing up the way that election authority works. And there, I think that if we rely on an overly formalistic reading of the Constitution, then we are we are going to have a, a very empty Constitution. And it's not like I'm just, you know, making this this up. This is, you know, really old um, way of thinking about the different meanings of, of the Constitution and the sort of protection of a Republican form of government. It goes back to Abraham Lincoln, to, to people like Theodore Roosevelt, really thinking about the substance of democracy. So essentially, this is the problem that I think is most simply put is, you know, the, there's a substantial movement in the Republican Party to reject legitimate opposition, to install election officials who are ultimately loyal, loyal to Trump which I think is increasingly incompatible with being loyal to the notion of the Constitution, to the notion of a republic of laws and not of men. So we got that problem. And that, you know, we see that in a bunch of different ways in terms of um, the rejection of of this whole notion of legitimate opposition. So we have one party that is sort of increasingly not wanting to play this game and wanting to change the rules of how states pick their electors, I think most in the most challenging example, which is constitutional, but it's highly, it's highly out of whack with our norms. And it's clearly not being done to solve any other problem than the problem that Democrats might win. But I think if we talk, we just talk about the problems in the Republican Party, we actually miss the story. So on the one hand, Democrats are not trying to disenfranchise different groups of Republican voters, as uh, as a friend of the podcast, Perry Bacon, observed earlier, earlier in 2021, maybe late 2020, made that observation. Democrats aren't doing stuff like that. But I do think that you're starting to see a lot of fragmentation in the Biden coalition and the kinds of things that we that Lee talked about, which are the sort of um, people kind of falling away from their 
their investment in the constitutional structure. And we're sort of seeing a Democratic Party that is having a really hard time being responsive to its voters and having a really hard time reconciling the competing imperatives for kind of normalcy and preservation. And on the other hand, this kind of wholesale policy change and political change that some portion of its its constituency wants to see. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude by doing what I do best, which is promoting my own work. Last week, December 30th, I had a, a piece in the New York Times about the kind of structure and history that informs what's going on in the Democratic Party right now. And I wanted to illustrate that. And one of the things that I included in that piece was the sense that even though the Democrats have a very small They've built a small and complicated coalition that it's very risky for them to pull back on their agenda because I think that there's real evidence about appetite for change in the electorate and a sort of broad sense of the status quo isn't working for a lot of people. And, you know, a scholar I really respect, Ray LaRaja, kind of pushed back on that. And I think it maybe is hard for us to know what the real appetite for change in the electorate is. But I think that's a it's a useful question that a lot of us should be should be working on and thinking about and taking seriously. So that is my that is my sense about democracy shenanigans going forward. Um, I, I want to move on to our next question, which is legislation. What do we see coming out of Congress in 2022? Well, you know, I, I think we could tie those two together because I mean, one of the things that's up for debate right now um, it is major democracy reform legislation. Uh, Schumer had said he's going to bring it up uh, before Martin Luther King Day. And, and this is, you know, it's a big question of whether or not uh, Democrats are going to pass this on a partisan basis. But, you know, I think one of the I want to follow up on on your point and connect some dots here, which is a question of what appetite do voters have for for big change? And, you know, I think this gets back to one of the topics that we were discussing last year about the the role of polling and and kind of going after some sort of mythical median voter who's like a you know a 53-year-old white guy with you know with without a college education um you know on on the edge of suburbia or something and you know I think one of the the challenges in this moment is that you know we're we're Definitely in a in a disintegrative phase in in the sort of broader cycles of American history, and an important question is what what is what is the vision for the future? And I yeah you know, I feel like the Biden administration is kind of and the Democrats generally are kind of struggling between a, the the past and the future. And we talk about the Republicans in a second, but you know there, there's sort of these programs to build back better, which is sort of this hodgepodge of various social policies that are kind of shoehorned into one one big bill, and as a result, you know there's sort of it's it's become focused on the spending number as opposed to the actual policy. You know, I think the democracy legislation is incredibly important, and I think it serves a, as a kind of baseline of what, what what we've come to expect as the as a free and, and fair election. But it's not visionary in the in the sense that it doesn't really think about what it means to have a truly fair and representative democracy, uh, and doesn't really. Th- Think about the the ways in which you know we we have a a, a political system uh, that that is that is really stuck and just just having a living a level playing field when you have two sides that are in trench warfare uh, you know just guarantees that you'll have more 
trench warfare. So I think I think it's we're we're sort of caught between two places, and you can kind of see the see the spaces in in which there's some more visionary ideas starting to emerge. But I think part of the part of the challenge for Democrats is that they're trying to do too many things without picking one or two big transformative things that will really kind of set the terms of a, of a, of a new political moment. Uh, and maybe that's a moment in which we really focus on climate. I think that's a ought to, ought to be an emerging issue, but there's this, this failure to kind of p- push a bold new vision that is oriented towards the future because Democrat coalition is kind of stuck between its past and its future. Yeah, I think that's right. And that was a lot of what I was trying to convey uh, last week. I, a friend of mine quoted something to me, apparently he'd seen somewhere on Twitter that I thought was really a smart way to characterize the Democratic Party right now, which is that everything is a priority, so nothing is. Um, I thought that made a lot of sense. Um, James, what do you see for legislation going forward? Well, and and I think we've gotten really deep into the ideas here, but I want to actually give us a chance to do a little bit of punditry. You know, will Build Back Better pass? Will voting reform pass? Um, will other things pass? You know, what will be the legislative dynamics? James? Once was the case in American politics where you could still do big things, not only in non-election years, but also in election years. We can think back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Majority Leader Mike Mansfield puts that bill on the floor, or at least tries to begin debate on it, in what, March, perhaps, of a election year. And not only an election year, but a presidential election year. And this is a bill that divides his party significantly. This is a bill that uh, Mansfield thinks is going to perhaps um, irreparably divide and damage his coalition that he leads. And he does it anyway, because he sees his job as facilitating the participation and debates of senators on the floor so that those senators can adjudicate the concerns of their constituents. We don't have that anymore. So why is it stuck? Are we engaged in trench warfare? Well, I'm not so sure that we are, at least inside the Senate. And for instance, where a lot of the problems we see are right now, because the Democrats uh, in particular, and they're not behaving any differently than say Republicans would in their, if the situation were reversed, in my opinion, build back better, for instance, there's a lot of effort to try to craft this bill behind closed doors and then to blame Republicans and unified opposition and the filibuster. But the fact is that you can't filibuster this bill. It's a reconciliation bill and they just don't have the votes. They do not have the votes. There's nothing inherently wrong with not having the votes. They just don't have them. And the question is, well, how do you get them? If you're Mike Mansfield, you get them by putting a bill on the floor and debating it and letting senators offer amendments and trying to to get to a compromise. And guess what? That generally almost always happens. Let's debate the bill, James. Let's break the filibuster. So, but, but hold on. So, but you don't need to get rid of the filibuster to end debate to begin debate on Build Back Better because it's a reconciliation bill. It's not. It, you can't filibuster it. Number one. Uh, as far as the Voting Rights Act goes, yeah, Republicans have voted against cloture on two separate occasions. I think the earliest was, what, in October, perhaps? I mean, they've blocked debate in one sense on uh, on beginning, basically adopting the motion to proceed to begin debate on this bill. But again, you yes, maybe you could get rid of the filibuster on the motion to proceed and you can begin debate. But let's look at it. There's also other ways to do this. The Senate has a rule. It's the two-speech rule. Senators can only give two speeches on any one question in a legislative day, and a legislative day can last for two years. But- Let's do that. Well, exactly. And I think right now we see this effort by Democrats to compel Republicans to vote for cloture, to reverse themselves on this bill 
and based by saying we're going to eliminate the filibuster. And but if Democrats would spend more time using the Senate's rules as opposed to trying to change them when they're inconvenient for them, then they would have already been on this bill by now. And I suspect this bill would have already passed. I think the problem arises when majorities in both parties say this is the bill that we want to pass. Any effort to change this bill is illegitimate, is somehow poisonous, and we can't have that. And so therefore, you know, we're not going to move at all until we get the votes and we're going to try to structure the this, the process to basically intimidate and pressure Republicans or Democrats um, into complying with it and going along with it. When in reality, in my experience, it's almost impossible to stop legislation if you allow the legislative process to work. It drives people towards agreement. The problem is that Democrats can't control that. Democrats can't control what the Build Back Better Act will look like after a freewheeling legislative process on the floor. They can't control what the Voting Rights Act will look like. Will something pass? Absolutely. I 100% believe that it will. The problem is that they don't want to relinquish their control. And so there's no effort to engage the Senate and try to be, you know, pass things uh, right now, as I see it, they're just not trying and they're behaving the exact same way as Republicans. They seem more interested in suppressing their own internal divisions, blaming Republicans for opposition so that they can be united and they can have a boogeyman and that they can win an election in November. But the problem with that, and Republicans do the exact same thing, is that nothing ever changes because you cannot legislate controversial issues behind closed doors. You have to have a fight. You have to have a process that reconciles losers to the outcome. And you can't just blame them and then sit on your hands and say, we can't do anything. You can get rid of the filibuster. And I do not think it's going to change things very much because until the Democrats and Republicans, if they're in control, allow the Senate to work, allow the Senate to be the Senate, then it's not going to work. It's going to be just as dysfunctional as ever, because right now nobody's actually filibustering things. They're letting Republicans veto measures. And the filibuster doesn't work like that. If Democrats want to play hardball, they don't have to break the rules to do so. They can use the rules and they would actually strengthen the institution, strengthen the process, bring more people into the debate. And yes, I think reconcile a lot of people to outcomes, just like when Richard Russell, as he stands up after losing this filibuster on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, says we had our shot and we lost. We lost. And I urge my colleagues to go along with this. It's the law of the land. I urge my constituents to do so. Because they gave him an opportunity and that opportunity, he lost that opportunity. And it's really hard to stand up and to keep fighting after you've been given a fair shot and you lose. I feel like I have, I, I sort of agree with some of what you're saying, James, although I, I think that the kind of critical element here is that the filibuster can do two things, right? It can allow the Democrats to blame Republicans for a lot of what they don't get done. And I think that there is there is an element of that because they do have this this tension in their coalition, but it can also be a tool that um, that allows Republicans specifically to keep Democrats from getting any policy wins. And I think these things can both be happening. And this is where I come back once again to, in order to really fully understand the, the picture for what's going on in American democracy, you have to look at a variety of things going on in, in the internal logics of both parties. And some of those things are, are deeply sinister and some of them are sort of more run-of-the-mill dysfunction, but they're all contributing to the issue. I, I want to actually talk a little more nuts and bolts about these two bills. And I don't know how I became the nuts and bolts congressperson on this podcast. So new things, new year, new things. But, you know, one of the things that struck me, and this is is you know, is maybe a, a commonplace observation, but I think worth discussing is that 
what might be going on with this voting rights bill is by putting it up for a vote, this is this is a real test of kind of how accountability works. This is putting legislators like Joe Manchin and maybe some moderate Republicans, um, people like like Murkowski or Collins or even even Romney, in a position of voting against the voting rights bill. Um, and I think that's that's really striking given the kinds of margins by which the Voting Rights Act renewals used to pass, and even, you know, as recently as, as 2005, were able to pass. And so to put these kind of more centrist legislators, senators specifically, in that position of, okay, you've got to be the one who's going to be uh, responsible for killing this bill, it, it is kind of a test of whether anything matters, right? It's kind of a test of do those factors and forces matter in American politics? Will anyone pay any consequences for that? And it, you know, if not, what what kinds of what kinds of actions do have consequences? I, I think the stakes for that for Build Back Better are a little bit different. And I think, I mean, my read on it is probably something will pass. Mansion will get to heavily dictate the terms, and we have these sorts of negotiations going on. I'm a little bit less down on private negotiations, maybe than than you are, James. I agree that public debate is really is really valuable and maybe would contribute to people's sense of investment in in the whole system. But it is also the case that this long drawn out and highly kind of public process has just made people feel dissatisfied with Congress because they've been kind of given this unrealistic set of expectations about how democracy can work in any context, but especially in a very large country with a lot of veto points. So that's sort of my prediction. And I sort of anticipate a scenario in which a voting rights bill may actually go down. um, And that this is just a measure of trying to force people to take those votes. And we'll see, we'll see if that matters. Or if, you know, polarization and other factors mean that, that real accountability for what you do in the course of the legislative process is out the window. All right. So I think this sort of builds nicely into thinking about these congressional dynamics, um, thinking about what to expect in the 2022 midterms. And I'll sort of preface this by saying we obviously have this conventional wisdom that when the when the president, you know, when we have a midterm election, the president's party tends to lose. And this this seems to be one of the more ironclad laws of politics. And I remember back to 2017 and 2018, when you have these kind of off-year elections, special elections, and then the 2018 congressional and gubernatorial midterms, that it seemed to be confirmation of this law in a time when, you know, there was a kind of heightened sense of skepticism about whether American politics worked the way any of us thought. And there did seem to be this sort of thermostatic reaction to to Trump. Presidential popularity also seems to have mattered over in the sort of course of modern history as far as shaping just how many seats are lost by the president's party. And of course, the actual dynamics of the legislature matter. You have this idea of seat exposure, right? How many seats is a party holding that they sort of have no business probably holding, you know, very high in... Uh, in the 2010 midterms when Obama was in office and the Democrats lost, what, 62 seats? Very low right now, right? The Democratic margins in the House are very slim and non-existent, as we noted in the Senate. So I think, you know, that these sorts of dynamics matter and the Senate map matters and that the Democrats are in a similar position to where the Republicans were in 2018, which is, you know, bad year, good map. Biden's pretty unpopular. 
just as as Trump was was pretty unpopular going into the 2018 midterms, I think the dynamics of that are different. And I also have kind of questions about how partisanship shapes these midterms going forward. So that's my that's my preface um, for our midterms discussion. Uh, Lee, you want to kick us off? Yeah. So in terms of like forecasting who's going to win, like I'm, I'm pretty bored by that discussion at, at this point because it's it's kind of going to depend on in this, some degree on, on some element of, of randomness. But the Senate, you know, there's going to be a few few key elections that are going to be close in the House. You know, I mean, maybe there'll be 30 seats that are legitimately up for grabs. It's almost almost predetermined at this point. But what, what I am interested in is how the parties choose to campaign and how the different factions within the parties, particularly within the Democratic Party, are positioning themselves to explain what happened in the 2022 midterms. Uh, because I, I think the, the anticipation is that Democrats will probably uh, lose, although, you know, there is a certain degree of randomness there. Uh, but my interest will be in what lessons Democrats are, are going to take from that as they move towards 2024. And also, you know, some of the governor's races are going to be super interesting. Uh, you know, like I think the, the Pennsylvania governor's race will be uh, super interesting. You've got a statewide attorney general, Shapiro, who's going to run on a, on a very like protecting democracy, uh, trying to run a very protecting democracy platform. Uh, you know, the Wisconsin governor's race the Georgia governor's race. In many ways, the, the more interesting than the congressional midterms are going to be these statewide elections for secretary of state in which democracy and, you know, some extent attorney general in which, you know, uh, and, and governor, of course, in which democracy is really going to be on the line. And that's where I, I'm curious to see how the conversation around democracy evolves in response to to those campaigns. Again, I think going back to our original discussion about you know elections right now, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on the elections this year, which is always a good thing. But I'm, unfortunately, I think the real dysfunction that we see in our politics is what happens in between elections and our inability to kind of do politics in our institutions, if you will, and to subvert our institutions to our kind of collective effort to win those elections if, as parties. And so, you know, in the midterm elections, if Republicans take back the, the House in the Senate, is anything going to change? No, I don't think it will. Just like I don't think the Senate's dramatically different now and the House is dramatically different than it was before last year's elections. I think that the parties right now, as I see it, there's a lot of bipartisanship in American politics. And that comes to how our politicians act inside politics, right? Act in these institutions. And as far and as long as Republican senators and Democratic senators act in the exact same way way when they're in like in the majority i don't think it really matters who's actually in the majority you know big transformative consequential change isn't going to happen on either side i don't think that people are going to see their claims adjudicated in any way and the majority if it's a republican one is going to do what the democratic majority is currently doing which is view the the congress as a factory and basically say to itself if we want to be in control if we want to be making legislative widgets then we need to do everything we can to to be the foreman of that factory to stay in control and that means that we need to win elections and so everything goes back to these elections and we turn out like those two 
hapless souls in uh, Beckett's Waiting for Godot, where we're like, look, you know, the promised land, it's coming. This guy Godot, he's coming. He's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. All we have to do is win this next election. Then we'll be there. I've been in politics now for over two decades, and this has been the standard line increasingly over that period of time. And you know what? Godot never shows up because in politics, we're not supposed to wait for things to happen. You're supposed to make things happen. And right now, as long as we're unwilling to take the chance of doing that inside our institutions, then I don't, to be frank, I don't think it really matters who wins these elections. I'm just going to say a couple things and then um, we can, we can wrap up, which is, you know, I think that in under most circumstances, I think that's sort of true. And I've, I've been really like contemplating this a lot. I wrote a piece after the Virginia gubernatorial election back in November, basically making this argument that, you know, we keep having these kinds of change elections and this dynamic, this very predictable dynamic of the president's party um, kind of losing in, in other kinds of down ticket elections is illustrative of people constantly wanting change and never getting it. And I think the waiting for Godot analogy is, is pretty apt. At the same time, I think if you have a House of Representatives that is stacked with, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene type candidates, you know, or, or Thomas Massey type candidates, that that's, um, you know, that does matter, actually. And that, the, and that when you have a House majority that is ultimately sort of controlled by this faction in the Republican Party, that 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 can have tremendous consequences. And I don't think we totally know what they are. But, you know, I, I think that there's a possibility of some real chaos if it's not just your kind of run of the mill partisan shift over, but some, you know, some really, I think, people who are not invested in our democratic values and traditions. I think that's really, you know, ultimately the, the possibility. Anyone have any any parting thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an incredibly important point that it's not just, you know, about about who which party wins, but also what that party stands for. I mean, I agree with James that, you know, we, we've spent, you know, the, the last as long as I've been following politics as well. There's always, you know, always one election away from having that permanent elusive majority. I mean, t to me, this is the fundamental uh, mind flaw of our majoritarian two-party system is that it breathes this kind of view that if we can only vanquish the other side, then somehow we'll, we'll achieve this great lasting, uh, you know, majority, which is totally an illusion. But because we're in this 50-50 politics and, and the, the other side is seen as, as illegitimate, uh, you know, th that's the, that's the logic of, of, of our political moment. So, uh, you know, I, I think we ought to break that logic. And that's why I'm uh, an enthusiastic supporter of changing our electoral system. So we have more parties, because uh, if we don't do that, we're just going to be forever stuck in this mindset. I mean, the, you know, the, the challenge is, it's not just about senators acting, it's about the types of people who are getting into politics in the first place, and the system in which they operate, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we have to also take a sociological view as well as a kind of institutional view of why people do what they do. It's not just, you know, this is, this is one of the most frustrating things in the in the kind of like, let's all come together commentary spaces. Everybody's saying, oh, you know, people should just engage in, in debate with people that they disagree with and politicians should work together or they should take action. Well, uh, why why don't they why don't they 
And it's because of the institutional structures and the, the sociological constraints uh, that in which they operate. Until we break that, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck. All right. So the two-party, we're back to the two-party doom loop. All right, James, closing statement. Then I'm giving myself the last word. It never left us. Exactly. My students really enjoyed that book. Uh, and I had them write an assignment where they came up with their own political parties and your multi-party system. And I think... You know, some of them really grasped the party politics logic, but many of them really were able to engage political imagination at a time when when I I think people are really dissatisfied. And so I felt really happy with how that class how that class turned out and um, their engagement with the book. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 such a crucial thing to to open our political imagination and thinking about different parties and different institutions is a great way to stimulate imagination and 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 make us feel that something else is possible other than this this rut that we are clearly stuck in. Yeah, I just want to concur and to plug Lee's book. It's an excellent book. I think that everybody, all of our listeners, should read it if they haven't already. It's also available on Audible. And I believe on Kindle. And so maybe we should do some live dramatic uh, readings uh, on, on this podcast as well. But, you know, I, you know, I'll just close in saying that I agree wholeheartedly. But as long as these, you know, rabid partisans, as, you know, as long as these people who will do whatever it is that they think they need to do to win their particular point of view, sit on their hands inside the institutions where they're elected to serve and actually behave just like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and the crazies on the other side of the aisle, and I use crazies affectionately, as long as they're not operating like outliers did who pushed for civil rights reform in the 1950s and 60s, um, the status quo inside Congress isn't going to change. And we can have a lot of politicians coming from a lot of parties, but as long as those parties all think about politics in the same way and approach it in the same way, I don't think anything's going to change right now because I don't think it's the conflict that's the problem. It's the lack of conflict in places like the House and Senate. That's the problem. When you have a liberal senator and a conservative senator saying very strident things in opposite directions, but acting the exact same way, and by acting, I mean not using every single tool at their disposal to constantly day in and day out slog away and try to get out of their trench, make some uh, progress, and to ultimately win the argument. When that's not happening, then then nothing's going to happen. And so we need our people who are most upset with the status quo to try to change it. And then maybe it'll eventually change. But until then, it's it's not going to change. And I think there's a lot of bipartisanship there. It's not the you know the, the, we have two parties. It's that we have no parties when it comes to trying to win inside the Senate in, in particular. And I think that's the biggest problem. And, and it's not just the, the politicians themselves. It's the people. There used to be a time where voters would vote out their elected representatives when they didn't do what they wanted to say. In fact, we go back to civil rights. That was a big push. Northern Democrats didn't have all the time in the world because they knew that if they didn't push on this issue, that their voters would be unhappy with it. Well, now the voters seem to have bought the another big lie, which is, look, guys, I'm, we're going to do what you want to do. We're absolutely going to do it. But if we want to do it, we got to win the next election, which means we can't do it. So if you want to actually win, then we need to try not to win. That's like, that's the secret. And the voters are like, oh my God, you're absolutely right. Because if we don't win, then the other side, the forces of evil, whoever they are, are going to come in, the republic's going to fall into the ocean. Well, in reality, we've had change election after change election. Parties have switched and changed nonstop. And you know what? It's all the same. No one ultimately 
acts. And so the ultimate responsibility, it seems to me, lies with our voters. If you're more afraid of a mythical evil force coming in and doing terrible things so that you tolerate your elected representatives not doing what they said they were going to do, then it's on you for why the status quo persists. It's not on anybody else. It's on you. And yes, more parties can help to solve that problem. But ultimately, it resides in our imagination and it resides in how we all think and understand politics. And so that's the problem. And I think that's what I'm excited about in this moment. Maybe we'll see some change, but maybe not. Who knows? But hopefully we'll have a lot more interesting things to talk about moving forward. Yeah. So I think we all agree uh, with the prediction. We'll have lots of interesting things to talk about in 2022. I just want to point out quickly that there's a really interesting dynamic here between the prediction about 2022 is a year of, you know, tremendous potential for, for volatility and for abandonment of democratic tradition and for kind of shifts in the balance of, of power that spell new and sometimes really ominous developments on the one hand and on the other hand this potential for great stagnation and i think this this relationship between a kind of stagnant polity where nothing changes and a volatile one where a lot changes or where a lot hangs in the balance i think is a really you know important tension that we ought to spend some more time exploring in our upcoming year of podcasting. So thank you all for listening. This has been Politics in Question, and we'll see you out there. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.